Welcome to the Startup Help Desk, your source for answers to questions about building companies, starting companies, and the meaning of life. Your panelists here are all experienced founders who have built companies, sold companies, and we're here to answer your questions with all of the hard lessons and mistakes we've made over our careers in the last few decades. My name is Sean Burns. I've been a founder for about 20 years, starting companies like Flurry and Outlier.ai. I've coached hundreds of companies. I've invested in more, and I'm here to share my lessons with you and answer questions that were submitted by founders just like you. I'm joined by a panel of illustrious founders in Ash and Nick. Hello, everyone. My name is Ash Rust, and I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I mostly invest in B2B companies based in the US, UK, or Canada through my fund, Sterling Road. I've also worked at places like Trinity Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence and Bullpen Capital as an advisor. Before investing, I was an entrepreneur myself, most notably an early employee at the social media analysis company Clout, as well as the CEO and co-founder of CentUp. These days, I spend most of my time coaching founders and have helped more than a thousand startups over the years. Hey, this is Nick Melionis. I am co-founder and CEO of a startup called Navi. We build tools that help folks learn innovation skills, solve mission-critical problems, and start companies. This is my second startup. My first one was in the world of crypto. I love to learn from the best. I love to support startups and founders on their startup journey. All of this has brought me to the Startup Help Desk, and I can't wait to jump in today. And to be clear, Nick was looking to learn from the best, but he couldn't find the best, and so he had to settle for us. But don't worry. He didn't worry. do enough outreach. <laughs> <laughs> what we I'm convinced. I'm convinced this is the best. <laughs> what we lack in expertise, we make up for in our humor. And so the Startup Help Desk is answering questions that were submitted by founders just like you. So if you have a question, please do submit it. Our website is thestartuphelpdesk.com. You can find us on Twitter as thestartuphd. And today's episode, all of the questions are about building your initial product. We're building products. We're building companies. Our companies are selling products. But let's talk about that initial product. So all these questions were submitted through our website or on Twitter around products. Let's get started. Ash and Nick, the first question, which I think is a good one, which is how do you decide what to include in your minimum viable product, your MVP? And your MVP is that first thing you're going to get out there. How do you decide what to include? Ash, what do you think? Nothing. I like to suggest absolutely nothing at first. Can we provide this service manually, maybe just using a spreadsheet and a cell phone? And surprisingly, the answer is often yes. Maybe you'll have to do a lot of manual work on the back end, but we can find out if there's actually value in providing this service uh, without full automation early on. So I prefer to suggest you know nothing or almost nothing. And then it's easier to see what needs to be automated most urgently versus what perhaps your initial hypothesis might be, which is you know perhaps a, a bunch of different stuff. So V1 in software, truly minimal. Um, things that are definitely not needed, login, settings, dashboards, uh, focus on solving a real problem, and then we can add in all of that experiential tissue paper uh, so uh, I like to quote Pirates of the Caribbean, anything we could afford to lose, see that it's lost. I love that. And anybody else picturing Ash stick, Ash is sitting in a store and people walk into his store and there's nothing on the shelves. And they ask him, Ash, why is there nothing in your shelves? You're like, I'm selling my MVP. <laughs> yes, exactly. What a, what a sterling endorsement. Thanks, Sean. If anyone was, <laughs> thank, thanks for ruining my perfectly good answer. Such a great friend. Nick, perhaps you've got a better answer. Nick, Sean's got lots of feedback, I'm sure. I, 
I know it's, well, it sounds like we got the foundation of Sean's next great comic right there. There's no doubt about that. The, my answer is very similar. I'll break it into two parts, then I'll kick it back to the two of you. First is I like to think about fake it before you bake it. And so as Ash mentioned, if you can solve the problem manually for your first users, do so. The, the key here is find the fastest, most inexpensive ways to learn about your target users and figure out if you can solve their problem. When it comes time to transitioning into actually, let's say, building V1 of your product, and I think this is what people consider the MVP in this case would be actually, let's say, writing your first line of code, so to speak. Simplicity is everything. You want your first product to only do one thing very well. So you want to solve one part of the problem for your first audience, and it should have only one feature. And the reason being is because in order to learn if you're actually solving somebody's problem, in order to actually measure the results, you should only do one thing. So as Ash mentioned, basically do nothing, try to solve it manually first. And then when it comes time to deliver, let's say the first code back version of your product, it should do only one thing and then measure if you're actually solving that problem. I'll stop there though. Ash, Sean, what do you have on Tad on top well, of that? Well, so I, I, I do agree. And I actually think Ash's framing of do of nothing is good because it gets you in the mindset that my MVP is oh, nothing. Agrees, folks, after just and, trashing and, it initially, and, and, now he's coming back with agreement. <laughs> this is like character building stuff, you know, in those TV shows on HBO where people start I, off as the villain I'm and then gaslighting they get Ash every here. time. I'm making sure yeah, I'm exactly. gaslighting him. And it's just hurtful. That's what I'm trying to let people know about. More people but, need to know what I have to put up with to get through the production of these episodes. So, Ash, in this, on a serious note, the, I, when I give that advice, I almost universally hear a response. But if people only got a chance to use my product, they would understand why it's so great. And people really do believe that if they don't build it, if people can't use it, they won't understand how glorious it is. I don't feel like I'm great at, at responding to that and trying to get them over that hurdle. How do you get people over that hurdle of believing that if only people saw it, they would understand how glorious it is? Yeah, I mean, usually what I'm trying to say is build it for who? Like, you want to put this thing together, well, who's going to be using it? Presumably, we need someone to have at least agreed to use your product before we build something. Now, a lot of people want to build instinctively, um, but pushing that hard question of like, well, what are you building and why should in hopefully redirect them more towards um, outreach and, and customer interactions first. But of course, most founders who are technical will want to build. And so you just see the product developing along their hypothesis an awful lot. And then you you usually have to contend with them having some desire to use their old code, or, uh, despite their learnings uh, that maybe push them in a different development direction. I'll add one thing to this too. So much of this hinges upon the problem you're solving and of course what that solution looks like. If you're building an invisibility cloak and that's your startup, it's going to be difficult to solve that problem manually on day one. The good news is most startups are not necessarily solving that much of a technical challenge. And so in this case, you can actually start solving the problem today. And so the best methodology and framework to bake into your routine is identify the specific slice of the problem you're solving and if you can actually start solving part of it today, go do it. Use something that already exists, do it manually, provide this concierge experience. That's the perfect way to reduce the time it takes to learn if you're on the right track or not.
Well, let's get let's get um, let's get specific for a second. Do either of you guys have an example of a nothing MVP that you've launched? Where where so we can make it really tangible for everyone. What's a nothing MVP that you launched, and how did it work? Yeah, absolutely. So for Navi, uh, the initial vision was that we could have a bot that would coach somebody on day one of their startup journey, and so of course, there's a lot of technical horsepower that would go into that. In order to solve for that, we just started an email thread with the first founder, and we operated exactly as this bot would. We would deliver curriculum, ask questions, and provide guidance all through an email thread. And that allowed us to start delivering value to user one immediately. And it paid incredible dividends. Number one, we learned massively. And number two, we were able to reduce the time it took to actually start solving that problem for that first user. And how long was it before you moved from you doing it to having a bot? Uh, so that uh, that is the golden question right there. What we found out was that building the bot was likely not going to be the big win and the big tectonic shift in terms of which problem we're solving. And so we found out that ultimately the first manifestation of our product looks much differently than what we had initially anticipated. So where's the bot? Still yet to be built. There, well, there, that's a good lesson that building software and building product is the most expensive thing you can do. So if you can avoid it, you might learn something along the way. Well, in the, in the interest of making sure we cover more questions about our initial products, Ash, what else is on the question queue for today? All right, guys, next question. When does good design matter? When does good design matter? I'll hop on this one first. Design matters on day one. The key thing here is that it all depends on what frame of mind you're looking at when considering what design means. There's really three kinds of design on your startup journey. The first would be design thinking. This is ultimately using problem-solving techniques and different methodologies to understand the root problem you're solving and who you're solving it for. This is the one that starts immediately. It's all about understanding the specific problem you're solving and start by mapping out how you could solve it. Then as you transition into later forms of good design, we've got user experience design, uh, and visual design, other components that will come in once you actually know which problem you're solving. But the core of this is that good design starts immediately, and much of it is framing the problem and understanding how to solve it. Sean, what's your take? Oh, I, I agree 100%. I think that it, good design is that bridge between what your product can do and the user so that they can actually use it for that purpose. And so it doesn't matter until you know who your user will be. It's very, you can't really use design. You can use design thinking, but you also still have to have a sense of who that user is. Even to use design thinking, far too many founders assume that their personal opinion or their personal experience reflects their user and that they are their user. And it, that's sometimes true, but it's often not true too. And so a lot of design thinking is trying to put yourself in the shoes of who that user will be. If you're building accounting software and the person they're in is an accountant, do you understand enough of what an accountant does and how they think to be able to put yourself in those shoes and start to use design thinking? If the answer is no, you should probably spend some time with some accountants so that you can do that. Uh, but the good news is that design thinking and all the breakdown you have, uh, Nick, which I thought was a really good hierarchy, is super valuable. And it's something you can incrementally add over time. And I think the way that Nick laid it out is absolutely right. The goal is not on day one to have a perfectly built visual design. In fact, it'd be a waste of time to do it. 
the goal is to understand the user, use design Wait, thinking. if that's the case, though, why do companies like Apple see a ton of great success by having those really polished designs on day one? I mean, that's the biggest company in the world, right? So shouldn't startups try and emulate that to at least some extent and have products that are polished right at the beginning? Ash brings up a good point is if you look at large companies, you will see the first version of their products and they seem enormously well-polished and well-developed. What you're not seeing is the entire process that it went through to get there. And so Apple definitely does invest a lot in design of their products, but there's a few things they have that you don't have. One is they understand their their users and they actually do a lot of user research so that a lot of people are seeing prototypes and seeing iterations that you don't see before it's launched. The second is they're typically building products for a customer that they know very well. So if they're building AirPods, they know that you're an iPhone user. They know a lot about iPhone users and a lot about iPhones. And so they actually can do design from day one, having a good sense of how you use it. And the third thing they have that you don't have is they can afford for their products to fail. They can spend time on the design and if they launch it and it doesn't work, they can kill it. Amazon does this all the time. They launch things and kill them. As a startup company, if you launch and fail, that's your company. You're done. But these big companies are so vast, they can afford to do it. And they do a trade-off. They decide, is it worth the effort to iterate and learn ahead of time? Or should we just try it and see if it fails? And they do both. Before the iPhone launched, Apple did an amazing amount of research and developing it. And for some of the later products, they haven't had to. So it's, it's a very different model in launching a product with a large conglomerate that has lots of products and lots of things in place, but it's a trade-off everybody considers. Um, and I try to do that in my best Ash voice. If it didn't sound like Ash, I'm still working on it. Give me some time. <laughs> this accent is far too expensive for you to replicate. <laughs> actually, that's true. I actually, I think that the, <laughs> the amount I would have to put in to acquire a really authentic British accent is probably far beyond what I would go for. Uh, this is good, though. I, I want to add one more note on this one. And this does apply to the Apple question, too, and the broader question at large. Ultimately, if we're looking at these three frames of design, design thinking, UX design, and then visual design, much of what Apple can do when it comes to those earlier stages of design is behind closed doors. They've got, they know their customer, they've got their distribution channels, and so they can be able to accomplish all of that, just do so in a way that's not visible to us. And of course, when we see it, they've made it all the way through delivering this amazing visual design. When it comes to startup founders, of course, you don't have the benefits of knowing your customer as well or having this built-in global distribution network. And so when it comes to your phases, of course, leverage design thinking to understand the problem you're solving. Ultimately, once you have proof that you're solving a problem that's worth solving at that point, the user experience, that UX design becomes huge. And then lastly, the visual design component on this is really adding fuel to the fire. Once you have proof that your solution is actually solving something that's meaningful, then you want to be able to even more strongly differentiate and a better visual design can help you at that stage. So consider those three steps as a nice framework. One thing, and this is an important clarification, if you're building a consumer product, be it hardware or a consumer app, when you do your big launch and your big push, you do want to have the design dialed in because you typically don't get a second and third chance to launch. That doesn't mean you haven't tested a lot before then, behind the scenes, in the shadows, with a small group of people that are 
not going to share what you're working on. So when you do this big launch, this big unveil to the world, it seems like it's come out of nowhere, but really it's been the result of a lot of work. In enterprise software, you can usually get away with iterating in public and having the product update itself. But in consumer products, you typically do have to have your design fairly well baked before your big launch because you just don't get two chances for it and consumers are fickle. But I, I have a lot of scar tissue from consumer apps. So uh, take everything I say about consumer with a grain of salt because it's a difficult road that I have ridden and, and aspire to never ride again. Okay, we're running out of time. We need to answer one more question or else our... We're not going to hit our quota of questions for today. Nick, what is last on our queue for today? All right, let's get it. This is question number three. How do you start selling? Can you start selling with just a prototype or do you need an MVP? Sean, you want to kick things off? Yeah, it's a good question. And so the reason it's a good question is I think a lot of this is similar to the first question, which is when are you ready? Like when is the MVP done? Like what is, I would ask first a philosophical question, what's the difference between a prototype and MVP? A prototype might be something that doesn't really work, but indicates how the product will work in the future, whereas an MVP might actually be able to do something, even if it's primitive. Maybe that's a good delineation to use. And so I think Ash, he answered this well in the first question, like ideally you start selling when you have nothing. And in fact, you can get, if you're selling enterprise products, you can get customers to sign letters of intent. They're non-binding. But essentially, it's saying having a customer sign a, sign a letter saying, when this product is ready, I would buy it or I intend to buy it. They're not committing to it, but it's essentially a way to quantify interest that can lead to a lot of progress later because somebody at least is putting the effort into saying, yes, this is something I want and, and there. So you can actually get quite far. And sometimes you need a prototype because their imagination isn't great. And if you describe it to them or show them mock-ups, it doesn't enough. And so a prototype is good. And sometimes a prototype isn't good enough. So, for example, sometimes your your let's say your application needs to plug into their their data lake to be able to work. Most companies are not going to integrate you into their data lake with a prototype. They're protective. They have security constraints. So you might need to have an MVP to show it to them to get them to buy. But you want to sell with as little as you possibly can, as quickly as you can, as part of that process. It's also the case we've talked on on other episodes about getting paid. Usually people won't pay you until you have a product that actually does something. They won't pay you for a prototype. They won't pay you for mock-ups. Um, that's okay. Your first few customers will be free anyway. And then eventually you'll get to paid. And by the time you get paid, you should have an MVP of some kind uh, overall. Ash, what do you think though? You seem very believing in, you seem very firm about the nothing approach. How does a nothing approach uh, influence your perspective on selling? So in my opinion, you have to start selling long before you have a prototype, certainly before an MVP. And first customers tend to come from that dis uh, customer discovery research. You hopefully should interview maybe 100 to 200 people. And the most excited participants from those surveys will become your first beta testers. Hey, Ash, on that note, how do you, so let's say that you're doing your customer discovery research and you have somebody leaning across the table saying, I want this, let's get started. How do you manage their expectations to then transition them into actually being able to produce that first version of your solution? So we want to come back with the conditions when someone's excited about the product. So they reach across the table, say they need this product right away. It's going to help them get promoted. You come back with, well, it's only in beta right now. So if you're willing to deal with a couple of bugs, then we're certainly willing to supply it for you on this kind of schedule. So you can be realistic, 
talk about the bugs right away, but you want to do that during this moment of maximum excitement so you can usually smooth over those things quite quickly. Now, when you see those first customers um, getting excited, so those first those customer discovery interviewees getting excited, they are likely to become your first customers. Um, and so that's just a set of questions. That's not a prototype, it's not an MVP, regardless of how you want to define that. So in general, with few exceptions, if you build before you sell, you're probably going to have to build twice. Instead, do lots of customer discovery, and you can get your customers uh, just from a set of questions, at least your first few. So Ash, there's, there's an edge case here that I think is important. Let's say your product's really complicated, like you're building a database. And if you go out there and sell them before you have it, and they're like, yes, I want it. And you're like, absolutely, we'll come back when it's done. But it's going to take you a long time. There, there's going to be a long gap between that enthusiasm and being able to deliver it. In the cases of really complicated products, how do you manage that? Because you're right. You want to strike while the iron's hot. If you have them engaged, you have them enthusiastic. But there could be a long delay, six months, nine months. It depends on some complicated products take quite a long time to put together. Yeah, so you want to create scarcity and generate revenue to keep them interested. So that's a, a, a common principle in enterprise sales is, oh, if a customer pays, they're going to have to give it attention. And so in this case, you would end up with less people saying yes, because you're pushing them to commit to some kind of payment, perhaps to join the uh, early alpha list to get regular updates, to be a part of the product development. So it's specifically built for them over the course of the six months, year, whatever, as it's being built. Um but you can get some people, if they're truly desperate, um, to do this. They'll be willing to pay up front. They'll be willing to use very, very early versions. They'll be willing to give you data sets to play with, and you'll be able to show them demos of the product as you make progress. And so you keep them engaged through a combination of regular good news updates and also uh, getting them to pay up front so they kind of need you to be successful. Uh, but of course, that's not easy to do, so you have to expect to do even more customer research to find those kinds of people. And of course, if you have blackmail material on these potential customers, that is good leverage to use as well. There's lots of options at your disposal. That's, of course, how I got Nick and Ash on the show is I have a I lot of blackmail on them. Out. <laughs> leverage hopefully, goes a long way. Hopefully the editor's listening. Just cut it out. No need to include the criminal stuff that he's doing. Oh, man. Oh, that was Sean the- Burns if the FBI is listening. <laughs> They're too busy with FTX to worry about me. I'm good to go. I'm cruising. Okay, we've come to the end of our episode. A lot of knowledge was shared. Some of it was useful. As always, Nick and Ash, thank you for all the answers. Thank you both. Absolute blast. I'd say it was fun, but that would be lying. (laughs) (laughs) We tell you nothing but the truth. Thank you for joining us for the Startup Help Desk. If you have questions, we would love to answer them on a future episode. Find us on our website, thestartuphelpdesk.com. Or find us on Twitter, the Startup HD. Please do answer, ask questions because that way we have more questions to answer in the future. For now, the help desk is closed, but we will see you soon. Good luck in building your business. <laughs>